Welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales, and this week we're once again kindly sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition. And as we near the end of our series looking at the history of native livestock breeds in UK, I'm delighted to this week be looking at one of the finest and possibly most populous sheep in the UK. The Scottish blackface breed can claim origins back to the 12th century, but uh, by some standards, the blackie is a surprisingly new breed of sheep in its pure form, originally thought to have been brought to the Highlands from Dumfriesshire. It became well suited to the harder lands of the Scottish hills. For a while, demands for better quality wool moved into favour of the Cheviots, and it would be an alternating cycle, really, as to which breed was favoured. Um, and some hills would regularly maybe switch tups from from one breed to the other. But it would be around the 1860s that the Cheviot hill sheep would start being replaced by the blackies. And uh, by near the turn of the 20th century, uh, that an association of breeders was formed eventually and uh, I'm delighted to have as a guest this week Matthew Hamilton of the Wolford's flock whose great-grandfather would have been one of those original group who formed that association. Matthew welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Matthew the breed had been gathering numbers right across the country over the last half of the 19th century but it seems as though the breeders didn't really want the breed to conform to purity not not in the beginning anyway more stating that it should be the best of many parts maybe. Indeed, we have records of my great-grandfather speaking at meetings in Muirkirk and Lauder in the 1880s. Incredibly, the topics of discussion were very similar to today. First, um, the type and length of wool was a hot topic. Uh, When wool could pay a rent or the shepherd's wage, the length and staple of the wool was very important. But there was also other side of the argument who considered the bearer coats gave hardiness and after all the wool took a considerable amount of food to grow it. Secondly, the the, the ideal size of a blackface sheep was constantly discussed. The small sheep favoured on higher hill farms and the larger sheep on kinder farms with a grey area in between. Uh, my great-grandfather stated that a small hardy sheep was an admirable animal, but that a large hardy animal would be even more so. So, obviously, there was a lot of discussion. And thirdly, there were arguments about the pros and cons of forward and backward pointing horns and a bold and kindly eye. And incredibly, today, the main talking points of black sheep are still the, the, the wool, the skin the size and the shape, type of horn and the eye are probably the most talked about characteristics of a black faced sheep. Nothing has changed, you're right. And as you said, still still a lot of, of hop topics and, and as we'll discuss, there's still a bit of a diversity, or a lot of diversity within the breed. If we can just go back to the, the beginnings again, back to this association, the main man behind forming this would be a breeder called Charles Howitson. And some people might recognize that name as the man who started the Scottish Farmer newspaper and uh, self-named, I think, as the Laird of Glenbuck. He was some character and he made his money in mining, I think. And Glenbuck has taken East Ayrshire, I think, and would I be right in calling him the father of the breed, Matthew? Uh, in many respects, bringing in the, the breed society, yes, I think so. Um, there were many noted before that, but he took over a very well-established flock from uh, Mr. McCarthy, and uh, with the advent of mining, I don't know whether 
Mr. Howitson was involved in the mining or just benefited from the royalties. Uh, but uh, he was well able to further develop the flock at that time. And he would uh, certainly do more to promote the breed than anyone else. Very famous uh, Ram Glen Buck, 72, who won the Highland Show on numerous occasions, being probably the most celebrated tup at that time. And uh, just imagine how the shepherds felt telling Mr. Howitson that they had just drowned the famous tup in the dipper. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly would have been a, a difficult Difficult conversation indeed. And I think he'd won the shearling top class at the Highland for something like 10 years on the trot and, and still would carry on as well. I mean, that's the goal of every breeder. It's some record that he had, didn't he? It's a, a tremendous uh, feat and uh, there would be a lot of uh, stiff competition in those days too. Mm-hmm. And... and uh, the Blackie top classes at the Highland Show go as far back, I think, as 1834, but they'd only, they would one of only a few breeds that would be there, I suppose, back then. I guess so. The, uh, the Cheviot and Leicester, I'm sure, would be and probably were there as well. Um, I have up on the shelf beside me the records of the Royal Highland and Agricultural Society from year dot. Uh, if anyone, and we have spares if anyone ever uh, is looking for spares uh, of them. Um, just a, a, a small uh, sales pitch. Uh, but uh, yeah, it uh, would be a tremendous feat at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, the Archibalds uh, at Overshields at Stow were probably the more to standardise the breed than anyone else. Um, it is said that they, they never bought in a stock ram, but kept their sheep in families and uh, crossed them carefully to prevent inbreeding and uh, really the original flock recording. Yeah. Uh, they only sold privately at, uh, and I don't know how they set a price, and at the Linton Fair and uh, uh, at the Farm Gate, I understand. Uh, these fairs were a continuation of the old in the days of the Drovers, uh, where they met in the, the way south at the at Dillington Fair. And uh, before the Archibalds and the Howitsons, uh, the now head flock, firstly owned by David Dunn, who died in 1794, and then now Mr. Foyer, was probably the furthest back that can be traced. Uh, even he's trying to get a digital record of the Blackface journals from the start, and it would be well worth reading an article in 1957 journal by Johnny McTaggart of Muirhouses. He was a fantastic character and breeder at the 60s and 70s. Uh, it's, it's called The Evolution of the Blackface Breed in that journal in 1957, and that uh, takes us back many centuries. It's an excellent piece of work, I think. Okay. Also, uh, Mr. Scott uh, wrote a big blackface sheep and it's a very good history of the breed from 1800s onwards. And that, I am told, is uh, by John Murray at Cross Flat, is coming back into reprint. So I look forward to getting a hold of that because I lost my copy. I gave it to somebody else and I can't remember. <laughs> so, uh, 
as, as that's easily done. Well, I hope that all these publications do come come more to light because I know there's a lot of people uh, interested in the blackface breed from all over the world, not of course just from Scotland and especially in its uh, in its history. And if we do just step back into that history again, back to Howardson, he would eventually hold his own sale of tup lambs at the, there at Glen Buck as far back as. 1872 and I think it was probably the the first of his kind and uh, the breed association w- was that we talked about was formed and I'll list the uh, original members here we have James Hamilton of Woolford uh, your great grandfather of course James Hamilton of Nether Wellwood John Archibald of Overshields that you mentioned James Cadso of Stonehill Captain Duncan Stewart of Knockrioch James Moffat of Gateside, Donald McDougall of Claggan, plus a few more. And uh, there was even an English representative as well, a Mr. Rollison of Docker Hall in Kendall. And although Howardson had the ability to trace most of his sheep back five or six generations, he, and I think quite a few others amongst that group there, decided that they wouldn't produce a flock book, which is quite different ideas, I guess. And indeed, one speaker believed that... Uh, one of the greatest interests of the breed that it should not be pure and stating that the the best of all things for the breed was, was the addition from time to time of a little extraneous blood. So uh, I can see that rubbing up a few traditionalists up the, the wrong way, yeah, Matthew, but he did have a point, I guess. I think so. I think uh, the variation that uh, of the different types of black faces uh, that suit each type of ground, um, they were, they, no one knew exactly how to make the breed conform to one specification. So um, I think uh, although making of the flock book was a very worthy thing to do, it uh, perhaps, and, and the work involved too, in the large numbers that were involved in blackface flocks at the time, sure. the, you know, the, how they felt at that point. I think all the flock masters would use their own selection and my grandfather and great-grandfather would remove a whole generation of females off a ram if they felt they had bad faults, mouths or mothering ability or mobility, as we still really do today. Mm-hmm. So does a flock book help? I'm not sure. It said that other breeds write down their lies, but uh, the black faces just tell it as it is. <laughs> so That might upset a few people at that statement, but yeah, yeah, you're probably right there. The lack of one obviously done the breed no harm. And if we go back to these Glenbuck sales, I think there were... 160 ram lambs averaged two pounds and ten shillings in 1882. The Duke of Argyle also held a sale, particularly of ram lambs again. And up until that point, nobody had really bred from ram lambs, Matthew. This would probably be a shift from buying older rams, perhaps. I think um, the ram lamb thing is its a difficult one to, to know how the, the balance goes between shillings and lambs. We have records at home of our own top lambs being used back at that time, but not so many sold. But uh, it became common to sell top lambs in the early 1900s. And the the higher-priced lambs would start probably after the war, Second World War, I think. Initially, they would be more commercial, I think. Mm-hmm. The sales developed around that. The, the Perth top sale was always the Thursday before Kelso, which is in the first week of September. And first Lanark was very close to then, then as well. And it was normal for tut lambs to be spined and sold straight off their mothers with no feeding. We have records of selling 40 tut lambs at Perth. And that is really natural selection at its very best. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that would be the mark of a good shepherd to buy a lamb straight off of the year before, she, before he's had uh, 
was a chance to be fed or or, or sunk, I suppose, after coming off his mother, yeah. Indeed. And and towards the end of the 19th century, a few auction marts had sprung up, of course, and uh, including Laurie and Symington in Lanark and John Swan in St. Bozzles and, and, of course, John Fraser that became the um, McDonald Fraser's auction mart in, in Perth. And eventually all of these would become venues for multi-breed top sales. Each one would be unsuccessfully, they'd, they'd try and vie for the position of being the main blackie sale. And I think hence that's the association was formed in 1901 to maybe take some control of that. Yeah, possibly. Uh, also, also the, the main reason I think too would just be the purely geographical, the different areas that the black-faced sheep were grazing. Sure. Um, the sales were for the local area of each market, I think, and uh, hence the different types developed in different markets. Sure. Although a lot of sellers did take their stock further afield. I suppose that would be, it still is, I suppose, difficult for, to bring a, an animal from a different area and sell it into a different area. Not just the, the, the physical side of that, but of course, uh, be a different type of sheep that probably wouldn't suit that area. So I, I can see why, you know, these things became very regionalized. And uh, in 1890, saw the first tup reach £100, the reformer from John Fleming at uh, Le Pluland. And this was bought by Glenn Buck, who in his extrovert fashion sent the animal in a taxi to Haymarket Station and then had it put on a train to Lanark. So uh, he was some character, that boy. Indeed, although in in those days, uh, sheep were walked many miles to the stations to travel by train. The the, the size of a pen at the markets was uh, related to the size of the the wagon on the the railway. I think it was 40, a wagon held and the pen fitted that and markets were built uh, around about stations every market had its station yeah of course and and, and the likes of Perth and what have you because the station was imperative to get to to get the livestock back and and, and back in those days and and how at some top the 1899 trade at 150 pounds and it was him again that paid 250 pounds for St Columba from the bush in County Antrim in 1909 so that was considered an astonishing sum I think 250 uh, but again that shows animals coming over the, the water from Ireland at that time and and I don't suppose they were they were being uh, blood tested and uh, checked by the the health authorities no. at that time. Probably just back the train up to the to the boat and load them on, and then unload them the other end onto the train again. I guess. And and uh, after being president of the association since its inception, Howitson took ill health in 1912, and then was replaced as president by James Moffat and. Would I be right in saying the main focus of the association after Howitson was to try and get a bit of uniformity across the breed, or or, or these animals still quite happy to be different beasts from different areas? I'm not so sure. I think one of the strongest points of the breed is its variety, and there is something to suit everyone. Uh, There's all types of upland hill farms. Just look at Lanark, Newton Stewart, the north of England, Perth. And then even there are subtypes within each of these types. Uh, in the Lanark, we have Muirkirk type, Yarrow, Lammermuirs, Eldenfoot, Arrington area. Um, and then, of course, Dalmally and the, the, the north and west um, have their own kinds again, uh, you know, subtypes within that. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, most breeders would be able to recognize a, a pen of sheep Without the nameplate, they would be able to guess, uh, do understand uh, the variety that each person has. Sure. There, there are 
purely to suit their ground, mm-hmm. really, I think. Certainly, the, the variety, as you said, was, you know, is, and is still there, and, and, uh, and, and rightly so, when Scotland is such a, a diverse country that it is, and we've seen that in other breeds as well, where there's been a divide within the breed and, and divides within areas as well. And many, of course, of these early records, unfortunately, were destroyed by fire, but thankfully, from a short history of the breed compiled in 2002 by a number of breeders, I think, uh, after what would have been the centenary year, 2001, uh, we've got a few snippets from there to help me along a little bit and uh, I see that in 1920 the top price was reached at £600 for Charles Cadso of Borland and would that be the same Cadso that we've been talking about associated with the Ling cattle uh, Matthew? Yes indeed the, the Cadso has farmed, farmed numerous farms in Lanarkshire and uh, uh, Borland and Weston were, were very famous at one point with the and the, the, the Cadsos moved east to the Lothians, and then, uh, I'm not sure exactly when they went to Ling, but uh, they, they did. And uh, in fact, my grandmother was a Cadso from Weston and Borland, uh-huh. and my middle name being Cadso, I was named in a systematic fashion, um, Matthew, after my, Matthew after my grandfather, and uh, although my father was Matthew as well, and... Uh, Cadzo, my granny's uh-huh. meaning name, systematic method of recording humans. <laughs> something something that happened in my family as well, but uh, I'm not quite as systematic as, of course, the Cadzos were with uh, the fantastic records that they kept and the way that they bred all those lings in families, which we've talked about on a previous podcast. And moving on a little bit, just about everything went into depression in the 20s and the trade for Tup's stayed steady for nigh on a couple of decades, I suppose, heads making that uh, Cadso's earlier prize quite a pinnacle until eventually it was broken in 1937. But it would be another decade before we saw John Arnott of Burncastle sell the first up uh, in the world, I believe, of any breed to make over a thousand pounds. So, uh, and despite Howitson's early sales, we probably should attribute the post-war era to the, the change of the breed, I think, as you said, from, from shearlings to tup lambs and some breeders would major in both, I guess, as, as I believe the, the Wolfords flock there, topping the trade in both, I think, in 1903, in, in both shillings and lambs. And one of the, the popularity of breeding from lambs would move most significantly the, the top sale from uh, from September to to October at Lanark and made it a two-day sale. And would that be lambs on the first day and maybe shillings on the second? Is that how it worked? Yeah, usually the, the other way around, uh, shillings the first day. Yeah, and do, um, yeah just uh, as a... There became too many sheep to to sell, uh, so they split the days, and uh, it just purely uh, proved by the popularity. But now, uh, Newton Stewart was originally a one day sale, went to two days, and is back to a single day again. And uh, Lanark is similar; it's, there were three sales at Lanark, and uh, the second one was over two days. But gosh, even Lanark will be threatening to move to a one day sale. Surely numbers having dropped because of forestry and uh-huh. other factors. Sure. Did talk about uh, producing those lambs and and you know, the swing towards breeding lambs. I suppose it's cheaper to put a lamb straight out of its mother rather than keeping it around for twelve months. Would that would that be the reason that uh, that more people started going towards uh, breeding breeding from lambs? I think so. Um, the shearings obviously are primarily are best to go to the the hill to the but lambs wouldn't cope out in a high hill terribly well I don't think um, so that's why 
tunes generally they're more often sold. Uh, lambs that are less sold, but um, they are generally smaller numbers, but of a higher quality possibly. Uh, but they're still to prove themselves as a shearling. Uh, the late the late Ben Wilson would be heard often to say that his best lamb was a Gimmer's twin, and he figured a lamb at the sale in good form, being a twin lamb, was a great recommendation for the Gimmer. Breeding from youth, of course, and I think that happens. It still happens in a lot and a lot of other breeds. It's all about breeding from breeding from the youngsters, and they say that's you know they breed best in their first year. But of course, that is a gamble. Anybody buying a lamb rather than the, than a shearling, because sometimes these. Shillings would have been used as lambs and proven already. You mentioned the the brothers Ben and Jim Wilson there, of course, and they would be men at the top end of the top lamb trade for a number of years after the war. That would be Trolos, of course, and uh, seemingly they topped the lamb trade, I think, on something like 20 occasions. And uh, uh, with a lot of the data being lost, it's it's, it's not quite that easy to get a picture of the averages of that period. But uh, I'm, I'm writing saying that they... They did set a record of a different kind, I think in 1966, when Ben Wilson sold the Trulos farm and the flock to Michael Scott. And after selling him the farm, he then sold him a Trulos top lamb for 2,800 at auction, thus making the Trulos both the, the buyer and the seller of the same sheep. How extraordinary. Indeed. Uh, but Mike Scott knew the Trulos flock very well. He was well acquainted with Ben Wilson and... Um, it was, would be no surprise to anybody that, that he bought the best to last uh-huh. lamb that year. Yeah, it's certainly a reputation for buying the best, hasn't he? And we look probably at some of the bigger estates, of course, across Scotland, such as the Earl of Rosebery and, and the likes of the Glasgow Corporation would be among top consigners. And um, we've discussed again in other podcasts, maybe it should be the farm manager or the shepherd who should take credit for some of these larger flocks uh, for the successes that they had. I... I think you're, you're right. Uh, the blackfaces, along with many other breeds of sheep and cattle, have always managed to attract wealthy landowners and uh, outside industrialist-type money uh, coming in to farming, and it provided them with a, an investment with various tax benefits. And uh, they poured a lot of money into livestock farming over the past. And uh, But those who have been successful have generally had a very able shepherd come manager to get them to the top. And uh, I think it very much takes teamwork and certainly not all of them succeeded, but the ones that did were uh, remarkable. That that certainly seems to be the case. And a lot of ones we've seen over the years, seen people coming into um, a breed and then buying all the animals and then getting themselves a stockman where, of course, the the successful ones, as you said, will have found the stockman first and let the stockman do make a lot of the decisions in in what they're buying and, and, uh, and a great credit to them and some fantastic stockman, of course, we've seen over the years with those merits. And uh, it would be the mid-50s that saw yet another top sale emerge, because in Newton-Stewart down in the south that we talked about, and this would grow to be the different type of sheep that they are down there, that sort of wetter ground. And uh, would the breed be developing into two strains, but two or three or more strains, really, as we talked about already? There, there were different type of sheep down there, definitely, than than, than you'd want in, in, the, in where you are. Absolutely. Every breed of animal especially in Scotland, has fashions and for long as they've been bred. And the classic uh, example would be the Shorthorn, Angus and Hereford breeders in the 60s who ignored the commercial men and bred the small cattle for the American market, opening the way for the continental cattle to come in. Um, 
And uh, the irony of that was that the Belgians came back over to Scotland secretively to buy the fleet double-muscled short-term cars to start another breed that we've imported back to Britain again. A lot of people forget, of course, that but Belgian breed really owes its origins back to the short-term and, and those Scottish cattle, of course. Myostatin gene, I guess, was present back those days. Mm-hmm. Well, blackfish sheep are no different to perhaps worse, um, you know, the, the fashions come and go and the wool fashion for example started off as a genuine commercial reason as the downbeats did really too I think and to give two strings of income both meat and wool with the advent of subsidies possibly the, the, the and the decline in woolen products and the increase in plastics the wool became out of fashion and there was no further use for the long coats but old habits die hard sure. There are still some of this longer wool type to be found in parts of Britain and Ireland, uh, um, the west of Ireland and the uh, southwest of England, Cornwall, Devon. In fact, we've been exporting semen to the USA and Canada, and their biggest complaint with the progeny is that they're too bare. They, they're wanting wool, but um, it's purely that's the phenotype they want to see, and that's what they want. Then even Stuart bred them uh, very bare uh, when they came into fashion. Uh, first, uh, Dean Monarch was a famous, he wouldn't have a wisp of wool on him, it was all hair. Mm-hmm. And uh, fashion changed again and they softened the wool, possibly with a, a, a little dab of another breed in. Uh, but uh, in the process, they made the sheep smaller and the West Coast buyers that flocked to Newton Stewart uh, turned away and some of them, to get them bigger, even went to to the swale. And uh, this has recently been a turnaround to larger sheep again, actually. Um, and many breeders today think that there are many sheep too big for hill conditions. Mm-hmm. But again, they, they find their place. Uh, there are places for most of the sheep. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, fashions change yeah. you know, um, quite rapidly. Black wool uh, became acceptable, and now it's not so much. Mm. Blood horns were, were acceptable, and now not so much. You know, uh, forward horns are the point of fashion. Again, 130 years from when my great grandfather and the Howitsons were discussed it in Yorker, it's a wonderful thing of fashion. Certainly, we do see. You mentioned the forward horns, and we do see now from the modern photographs of the of the lambs going into the, the sales. And of course, the internet and social media affords us a lot more great pictures of these animals. And you can see the change in the breed that they are very much wanting that more forward horn. Is there a purpose to that? Is it something easier to catch hold of, or, or, or is there a reason behind it? <laughs> um, I'm not sure if there is. It can be a in, interfere with uh, lambs at birth. Um, it's a, a very uh, difficult trade to justify but it certainly is a fashion at the moment. Mm. Incredible thing, as you said, fashion. But, of course, it's uh, it's not just fashion. It's down to the money, isn't it? When some of these sheep have got the right horns instead of the wrong ones in the same way that the, the Texel sheep, they got the right nose and the right size of head and, and, yeah. and they're worth 10 times the money. So it's, uh, it's something you can't, have, can't look away from as a breeder. But uh, certainly, as you said, some of it's a little bit too hard to understand. And let's just move away from, move on, should I say, to more recent times and have a, you know, a chat about the, the Scottish blackface. And of course, it'd be fair to say, I'm not sure I've got my numbers right, but I think there might be more blackies in Scotland than all the other breeds put together. Would that be a true statement? There certainly was at, uh, at one time. I suspect that drop, large drop in numbers of black-faced sheep with the, the hills 
the sheep coming off the hills for either trees or shooting, that there are a lot less blackface sheep. That is uh, shown by the large reduction in the blackface top sales. Yeah. Many less trucks to be sold now than uh, there used to be. There used to be three rings going at Lanark, and now there's there's only two, and it could but it could easily be amalgamated into one ring. Yeah. So um, the numbers are reducing, and the opportunities for blackface sheep are our hill sheep are have been reduced. Uh-huh. The blue faced Leicester, of course, and the, the border Leicester would have made uh, the blackie of you know, a, a f- first choice crossing you as well, wouldn't it? And a lot of these big flocks would be would be crossing them and you know putting out putting out mule arms out, out of them. But uh, I've spoken to one or two blackie breeders. Um, uh, would it be fair to say that the the top breeding flocks would just have a a nucleus to choose from rather than pulling their breeding stock or their their top uh, pedigree stock, if you like, from across the whole whole hill flock? Would the pedigree top be a different type, perhaps, to the to the rest of their flock? I think there are cases of um, stud flocks. Uh, we certainly don't. We try and um, use the size of our flock to advantage by moving our own breeding around around the farm and uh, it allows a good breeding ram to be used more than twice on one one area without uh, coming back on its progeny. So uh, we certainly wouldn't recommend a, a stud flock. Um, and it uh, possibly increases any genetic defects more quickly. They can spread around uh, in a smaller stud flock. Rather than using the variation in a in a larger flock, certainly wouldn't be picking a hundred used to develop as a stud flock. Certainly, as you said, that may happen in other flocks, but it's not sort of advocated. Okay, and, and we'll move on to the to the breed association themselves, of course, and they've always been big on promotion, haven't they? And always popular at the at stand at all the events, and well supported by by all of the breeders and all the breeders that are rally round. Together, and I think th- th- at one time they shared a stand with the Chiviots and a few others. And uh, it would be again the association before the war, maybe that they lobbied the governments to introduce the hill subsidies that, that you mentioned, and something I think that came in eventually in 1941 and initially two shillings per head subsidy, but it was still welcome. And of course, the, the Balfour Committee was formed to take control of that. And uh, Soon after, yeah, that would have done the blackie a lot of favours back then, wouldn't it? Getting the sheep, getting a lot more sheep onto the hills. Indeed, uh, it would. Uh, it was a, a colossal uh, turnaround in, in fortunes for the hill farming, and uh, due really to the government after the war realising that they had to trend uh, more responsible for their own food. For our own food, and um, but uh, you talk about fashions there, and of course that that more less than a fashion, more of a fact. I think, of course, that we, we might be getting ourselves back into that situation again now after what's going on all over the world, and 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 at the moment everybody's wanting to plant trees on the hills, but uh, you do wonder that uh, some of these these sheep might be might be needed again if we need to feed a donation from within. But that maybe that's a political subject we should probably steer away from just now. It's a very interesting subject because. I think that the land that the blackface sheep and hill sheep in general graze is very carbon friendly. Um, it continues to store and g- generate carbon deposits. I repeat, it's still, still mm-hmm. uh, depositing. And I think that if we could get the figures proven that 
our farms would be we could sell carbon positive or carbon neutral meat uh, and it should be so be able to be sold at a, a premium it's, it's really quite an exciting project for the future certainly sounds it and uh, of course everybody wants carbon neutral at the moment there's a lot of misunderstanding around that information and everybody thinks that a tree is far more carbon friendly than a sheep and uh, and as, as you said you could you probably could easily um, disprove that theory but uh, let's let's watch this space and i hope it uh, Hope we can reverse that trend a little bit. And let's go back to the association again. Of course, they supported the fat stock shows such as the Winter Fair and Smithfield. And I remember one year then bringing a hundred blackies down to Smithfield, I think, in a sort of promotion. And and the, the, the slogan that a taste of heather was the was was or something similar that w- was used. And of course, outfits like Squabble will get behind the breed to promote the lamb as well, and opening up new markets for exports for, for lamb. Of course, towards the start of the twenty first century, and a lot of hard hard work was done by the association under Audrey Fenton initially and the Nicholas later Aileen McFadgen who's done a great job and, and uh, you know Blackie Lamb is, is it's different, it's unusual, isn't it? But it's 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 as well as being excellent. It is some to some people it may be an acquired taste, but it certainly has more flavour um and it's an, it's uh, every breeder thinks that his breed is the tastiest, but um I certainly can could pick out black taste lamb compared to other breeds definitely has a different flavor. on a blind tasting yes and i think with the cattle we've looked at all sorts of people saying that their breed was their beef was the best because they're going back to the traditional because with more fat and marbling but in in this case the they said it's the it's the heather that's put the the taste into it in the same way that it does into into game i guess i i, I think so the black piece is quite different from other sheep to even to look at it, it is true it's a different um Breed totally any other breed, and I, I mentioned the shows there, of course, and there there were classes uh, recognised at the Highland in 1834 for tops, anyway. But it would be the turn of the century before the females were allowed to to join in. But showing's an expensive business, obviously, and the breed association would be quite forward thinking by the 50s in subsidising breeders to go to shows like the Royal and the Yorkshire. And I mean, there's no better promotion than, than turning up with a good class full of sheep there to promote your breed. It's, it's good money invested, I'd say. Yes, indeed. The, uh, Aileen and the previous president society have done excellent work in, in um, promoting the breed and uh, a lot of hard work. On the subject of showing, it would be based on what we've just discussed about the different types. Showing wouldn't be an easy job, but it'd be some highly diverse classes at times. I guess would would a judge be different judges be appointed to at different times, or just a matter of preference? Or I think at one time they had two or three judges in the ring at the same time. That'd be a nightmare, wouldn't it? And eventually, till they, they settled back down to one at the Highland, anyway. I think uh, an absolute nightmare. Uh, uh, they would have won judge from one type and one judge from another type and the, the arbiter would do the judging and um, a, a few sets of boxing gloves I would have thought as well Indeed, I remember judging the Angus show with the late Archie Black from Tangy and uh, he picked one and I said I like that one and we discussed it and, we, and he seemed to occasionally let me have my way but in the end I realised that he got his way <laughs> Um, he was much more uh, able to manipulate me than I was at that time. And, and would the sheep be a bit more standard now? We'll go on to, the, to some of the wool and things, of course, that happened in the shows. But now with the classes of blackies at the Highland, would they all be fairly standard of one type from maybe the Lanark area? Or would they still get the, you know, the different ones coming in from different places and all competing together? 
they're probably more standard. Uh, they, although, you know, back in the 60s, it depended on the judge really who got their, their sheep, but there were more north-type ones shown back in the 50s and 60s. Well, some, but, uh, somebody told me once the art of showing was to pick your judge, and that's probably quite right. When you look at the schedule and see who's judging, you know whether he's going to like your type of animal or not. So I suppose the same would, yeah, same would probably still happen, maybe. Probably true. But a lot of stalwarts did uh, show regardless of the judge, and uh, it, it was a, a fantastic sight, you know, the, the numbers of black faces at the Highland mm. Show. And, and it's gaining again, actually. It went, it diminished for a while, but uh, people do very well to spend four days at the Highland Show mm. promoting the, the breed. Sure, it's a, it's a hard job, let's let's face it. It is a hard job, but certainly around the ring at the Blackies, there'll be more people watching the, the Blackies than just about any other breed when they're, when they're on. You can, you can normally tell when which, which ring is being judged from afar when you can see them five deep standing around the ring. And, and on the subject of showing, of course, going back the way anyway, they'd clip the show sheep in, in January and uh, you know, so they could get some decent jackets back on them. And, and of course, going back the way the jackets were down to the floor in a lot of cases, judging by the photos that we've seen. I think they called them land sweepers was, was the name for them at the time. But it's, it was about having enough wool on for the shows, wasn't it? Yes, that was New Year's Day job at Wolfers was to, to shear the, the, the early clip rams. Okay. We sold two... Classes of early clipped and uh, late clipped shearings in those days. The early clipped ones would have ribbons on their on their wool to tie up the wool to hold it out the way of their feet from their feet breaking it when they were walking. Quite, quite incredible. I've uh, seen some of those photographs, and they're fantastic. And of course, those heavier fleeces would be it would be high quality, wouldn't it? And there the, was reasons for the heavier fleeces. It wasn't just about wool for making clothes. There was there was various markets, of course, for for the fleeces, weren't there? Well, indeed, the the heavy uh, fleeces were for the Italian mattress trade. The wool had to be of a long staple, springy, and uh, to give a bounce in in the mattress and. Uh, there had to be no hair in it, uh, which wouldn't have the same spring, nor black wool. Um, they, it was a tradition in, in Italy that each new bride and husband were presented with a new mattress on their wedding night, and there had to be no black wool uh, to hide the proof of her virginity. So um, that tradition has um, certainly waned, I think, in the, the modern age, and uh, so there's no longer a demand for a new mattress, <laughs> nor nor proof of identity of your of your respective wife. Uh, Thank, so thankfully, he said. Thankfully, there's no there is no longer a, a demand for mattress wool. Okay, but although although it actually is, we, we sleep on a on a wool mattress, and it it cannot be beaten right. for comfort. Okay. Something I've not tried, so there, there's uh, to our listener there. There's something to to get investing in. <laughs> Maybe that's the future again. And, uh, and of course, they, they believe the coarser wool. I, I think it was you mentioned that the coarser wool would dry out quicker when 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 they get wet. Yes, I think so. Uh, there was a danger that fine wool can act like a sponge and hold the water and can actually get a sort of wool rot in the middle of the back. And um, there is a benefit of having either coarser wool or possibly hair in the wool and in the breeders pre-1900 talked about a double coat consisting of a shorter fine wool uh, for insulation and a coarser long fibre basically called a waistcoat and a jacket mm-hmm. and the theory was that the fine wool would keep the sheep 
insulated in the long row drained the fleece of the water when shaken. Yeah. You possibly have a good point. It did. It did, yeah. Interesting, the two different types of code, and we still see a bit of that now, or is that just got, that, that's come back the way? It's not certainly not um, aimed at, I don't think. The, the northwest, on the west coast, they do want a hairier coat, uh, just basically shorter. Uh-huh. Okay. Where, where they get and, a bit and more rain. Soon, soon, soon they will breed a... Uh, a breed that will not need shorn, that will cast its coat. It's, it's, there are more and more black faces showing that tendency to cast their coat. Certainly a lot of work's been doing, done on that more recently when it costs more to shear the sheep than, than the wool is worth. And Going back to the debate that's probably always raged on, on this podcast where we talk about a lot of pedigrees, that the, the show sheep with their extra wool were perhaps not commercial sheep, and that's a controversial um, subject. And uh, would that be just Would that be a myth? Probably not. It, uh, once any sheep or animal of any breed is fed to an extreme, its fleece and coat being groomed, trimmed, conditioned, washed, coloured, it's uh, no longer commercial. And uh, But showing can be useful and it lets people see what is available and compare them together in a ring. I think it's a very useful thing to do. It's, it's as rarely done at a sheep sale anymore and I think that's possibly a a step backwards. It's good to see animals out in the, in the open, getting three feet of straw in a pen. No, that's that's true enough. We've all seen, we've all done it maybe at, at sales where you put a load of straw underneath them to make your animals bigger. But uh, I think when you want to buy them, you lose it down the alley. But there's nothing, as you say, like seeing them out in the show ring, especially with the blackies when they lose them one at a time into a bunch. It's a spectacular sight. But you, you do see what you need to see, as you said. Mobility is, you know, is essential um, quality for, for, for that breed and the breed that's got to run the hill, but for any breed. Indeed. I think uh, compare them is a wonderful way to do I mentioned earlier on we've got a few snippets of, of information there and I've found some a couple of quotes from the Scottish farmer. I think it was about a Galloway breeder who had bought the top price blackie I think in Newton Stewart three years in a row and, and the longer wool, the land sweeper type if you like and a toast was made at the at the, the blackie dinner um, saying that uh, one of these these um, tops that he'd bought had left no lambs but the tragedy was the other two had so it's a little bit of a derogatory snub if you like it. At the longer wool uh, Yep, that's uh, farming humour at its best, isn't it? And uh, and uh, I, I myself have bought sheep, wishing that they maybe hadn't left lambs. Uh, it does happen. <laughs> And another interesting snub in, again in the Scottish farmer, I think, was in 1901, and in a bid to oust Howitson's ideas about excessive wool, Sir Robert Menzies introduced a class four wool on the hoof at the Highland Show, and it was judged by the manufacturers as a sort of supplementary class, and all the prize-winning sheep came last. Indeed, uh, it's purely a judge's prerogative, isn't it? If they're not wanting wool, then it goes last in class. Uh, and the judge is not necessarily right. It's only a matter of opinion, I suppose, unless there's more info available uh, just look at stock judging competitions. Uh, you try and place four sheep, uh, but the variation in the crowd uh, means that people very rarely get the top score. You know, so um, it's judging uh, is a. Uh, it's not an exact sign. It's a good job that we're all different as well. Or would, uh, life would be a bit dull, wouldn't it? And, and, and in order to try and resolve mm-hmm. this issue with the wool, I think um, 
they uh, they actually tried to have different classes for sort of woolier ones and the and the and the and the tighter skin ones, and I think that ended in disaster as well. And another issue, I think, was the use of colour on fleeces and something that the trade weren't very keen on to the point where in 1938, the Highland Show banned colour on all breeds. But this resulted, I think, in a, in a mutiny from, from the shepherds and it was rescinded the, the year after. But uh, colour is, is, is to, the, to, to, the, to the layman looking from the outside, they, the, the Highland Show, they'd think that all the blackies had, uh, had dark fleeces. But, of course, colour is put on there for a reason, isn't it, uh, Matthew? Well, yes, indeed. Um... I think uh, there are colours uh, on the market that do stain the wool, and if the wool is to be dyed again, then it has to it has to be white. And so, um, it, uh, it, the the permanent dyes are probably bad, but most of the, the dyes that we use now are natural. We actually only use, really only use uh, natural colours. Um, of clay and um, iron ore, which gives a, an, an orangey brown colour. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, back in the 1800s, early 1900s, uh, when the Beaufort sheep were really in their heyday, um, the mossy ground, the steam engines, and the, the main line to London, the pit and mine workings, oil refinery, uh, the shale oil refinery was uh, not far away from us. The air pollution was very high, and people actually came to gather the black shale from the, the pits to make a, a clay to colour their own sheep to make them the same colour as the Wilford's okay. ones. So that you know, pits was fashion at that time. It was that on the trend, yeah, you set in the fashion. Of course, and more recently, yeah, what what do what do breeders do now? Is it just clay off their own farm? Or, 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 or well, yes. A variety, I think. I, I, I'm not. I can't uh, tell you what other breeders use. You see some pots of wonderful blues of colour. Um, so uh, we go on. So uh, I would like to think what was all in trade them. secrets. Sir. But uh, the trade secret. Um, I mean, more recently, I was in 1987. Actually, during the the troubles in Northern Ireland, I was asked by a prominent Irish breeder to bring over some of the famous Greenfields clay, which was a, a brownie, a very natural colour that the Western flock used to use for their colour. And uh, I was flying over and I duly packed a six-inch ball of this moist clay into my shoulder bag and walked through the airport security, where I was I was promptly disappeared between two large soldiers to the astonishment of myself and fellow travellers. Uh, it took an hour or more to convince them why I had a ball of clay in my bag, which they thought was sensitive. <laughs> yeah, that would take a bit of explaining, I'm sure. I'm sure. And we'll move on to more recent times within the breed. And firstly, can I start with a bit more profile on Wolfords? Of course, it's in West Calder, I think, just southwest of Edinburgh, to our geographically unaware listener. And, and it, uh, we're just northwest edge of the Pentland Hills. Um, we're, we're about uh, eight fifty to a thousand and fifty feet, so we're not uh, in, by any means a high hill farm, but we are a fairly bleak area that anyone that uh, passes through uh, certainly um, it is wet and uh, very peaty land. Uh, uh, um, and I'm right in thinking that James, your, again, your great grandfather, was a pioneer in a few ways, and didn't was there a coal mine on the farm uh, back back the yes. day? Yes, 
there was a coal mine started. They they didn't run it. They benefited greatly from the the royalties. And my great grandfather kept and grandfather kept a, a man full time at the pit head uh, to take the limestone that was taken out along with the coal, uh, and he burned that to make quick lime. And the quick lime was scattered. Two men full time, one man full time burning it, and one two men full time spreading it on the land. So when I bought a horse and box and cart, it must have been a desperately bad job because quick lime would burn the hands of the. Uh, and, and that would be to to get to do away with the heather, would it? Would it be to control the heather, the quick lime? Yeah. Yes, there was heather to the back door. They said when my great grandfather came here in 1864, mm-hmm. um, only suitable for. Uh, an Ayrshire cow, but certainly not suitable for sheep, was what the comment was at the time. I, so I, can, I couldn't see an Ayrshire cow living on Heather, Heather either, but uh, maybe it's a different type of Ayrshire back there. And then we, we move it along. The Wolford's flock would be now described as a north type. Would, would that be right? And you've been at the yes. pretty much at the sharp end of the breed since 1900, constantly winning shows and breaking records and... More recently, 24,000 uh, Guinness in 2005, 41,000 a, a year later. I mean, you guys have been right on the top of it. How, how many sheep do you run there at Wolfords now? We, we have 1,500 ewes and uh, 150 Angus and short-horn cows, suckler cows, that go to a Shirley Bull. So, and we breed our own heifers. Find the cows go hand-in-hand with the sheep very well, grazing the, the, the hill grazing in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And and the because the top end of the breed has escalated in prices since the millennium, I suppose. And, and uh, now some there's some names in the top of the flocks. So I'll just run a few. We can't mention all the breeders, obviously, but uh, the money seems to be spinning around between the McGregors at Allan Fold and of course Alan Blackwood at Holt House Burn and Arna at Burn Castle, McCall Smith at Connachan, the, the Hunters, of course, at Dalkerry, uh, Dunlop at Elmskluk, Graham's at, at Glenroth. The whites at Midlock, the MacArthur's and Nunnery, the Scott at, at True Loss, and, and, and yourselves. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot more we could we could mention. The Arnott's and the and the Scott you know, Scots at True Loss are no longer with us, but uh, it's a, a continual, it's a fluid situation um, where some folks fall by the wayside and others uh, gather momentum, and uh, there are a lot of. Uh, very good breeders in Northern Ireland now. Uh, Again, of course, there's some, those are some great names. There's plenty more that, that we should mention. Uh, and Matthews, anyone else I should be discussing in there or adding to that list? Well, in the, in the North Breeds, the, uh, I think it should be mentioned that Ivory and Lascelles at uh, Doldy, along with uh, Dave Nicholl, the, the shepherd, made a wonderful contribution to Blackface Sheep, uh, to the North Breed especially, um, in the in the sixties and seventies, and uh, again um, with a, a great partnership was was Tom Patterson at Bengarthel along with Colonel Dewhurst. Uh, Colonel Dewhurst was King Dewhurst of Dewhurst Threads actually, mm-hmm. and uh, but they, they bought he bought Bengarthel and they had a fantastic period at there, there with the, the North Type, and Tom went on to. Do very well on his own at Craigney, and uh, the the Adams at Bellity um, and Aldallan, who 
also had the new house heard of Angus and Shorthorns and, yeah. and uh, Border Leicesters too. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they uh, really should have been mentioned too mm-hmm. to the to the North Great and and others, but I'm sure there's a lot more uh, that are not on that list that should be. Uh-huh. Uh, so it is a wonderful breed and it has that fluidity of, of flocks come and go. Yep. Uh, of course, a bit like the Suffolks, the tops don't get named until after they're sold, so sometimes not at all, so it makes it a bit harder to research this. Is, are there one or two tops that we could say made a big mark, and never mind the big prices, but made a big mark in the breed and, 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 and put a bit of a backbone in a few flocks? Yeah. In days gone by, a lamb could be used four, five, six times in a, in a flock, but... Um, with the diminishing numbers and possibly more people trying to breed for a smaller pool of buyers, um, the, the bloodlines come back very quickly and we're always looking for new strains. And it's quite rare now for a round to be used more than two years, mm-hmm. which I think is a big, a big detriment to the breed um, because the, we're not breeding for longevity anymore. I think our, the mouths and blackfish sheep are, are much poorer. Um, we uh, used to regularly have views 12, 14 years old, still with our teeth, but mm. we can. it's not so easy to get them that age now. Okay. And, of course, as you said, your sheep being shared around, and I think the current breed record is, is 200,000 for, for a lamb from me and Hunter at Dalkiri, and that sold to Alan Fold, Midlock, and... Glenrath in 2020. So, and these would be used as AI, I guess, nowadays. I mean, it's much easier to share share these animals around geographically, is it? Yes, indeed. And uh, one ram can sire hundreds of lambs in one year. Um, so possibly if you take that over, spread over naturally over five years, it maybe comes to the same number. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. There's no such thing as a perfect sheep. They all have their faults. And um, if you push... One sheep too much, you can introduce other folks unbeknown. Sure. Well, we just mentioned another couple there. The previous uh, record would have been Elmskluck at 160,000 and Delcarry at 160,000 as well. These are these are big numbers, aren't they? I mean, this is, uh, you know, that's 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 the entire value of some people's flocks. And when you get to that, that's that sort of money. And the top price female was 14,000, I think, from Old House Burn with uh, Alistair Fletcher. And I have to thank Alistair, actually, who's... Uh, whose history in the Scottish farm of, of the Blackies has been invaluable to us. But uh, there, there's some big money flying about, isn't there? There is. But if you look back to the other high prices that you've mentioned, 600 in 1938, that was the Cadzos, yeah. um, that would be colossal money in those days. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, uh, I, it's interesting. To, I don't know if there's actually much difference in the price uh, if you took the value then to what it is worth now, um, the places probably are holding uh-huh. holding the home, in fact. And of course it is a, a high-flying trade. I mean, the race is on probably between the you know, the Texels and, and the, the Texels at the moment are 350,000 at the top and the Suffolk's have been up in that that telephone numbers as well. And the Blackie, I mean, it probably isn't long before we see a sheep hitting a million. And uh, it's... Uh, it, it it seems to be a bit out of proportion, but I suppose if we if, if it's supply and demand, and and uh, if they can spread it over enough sheep, then uh, then the money comes back. Doesn't it? I don't think anyone wants to pay a lot of money for a sheep. <laughs> <I think. laughs> 
mean, we 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 club together sometimes to to cut out the opposition. If you can get if you can join the opposition, then then you've taken one of the bidders out of the out of the the equation. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, it's uh, I certainly don't go to. I'm a, uh, to buy a sheep to see how much money I can spend. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, probably nobody, or maybe some people do, but uh, no, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, um, and uh, the the modern Blackie, you of course, is still a, a hill. You is she still a, a Blackie? You still as as he was originally intended? Is it is it? You know, is there still you know, a good market, a huge market for draft views to to be going on to going on to other hills? Oh, I, th- I, th- I think so. I think uh, there's still a. Uh, a place for blackface sheep, as I said, the, the the areas that are available to them are diminishing, but uh, and there's still a big demand for cross use. Uh, the mule lamb is uh, still the most numerous crossing sheep. It's still, although the textile is making inroads. Yeah. Uh, I think there's still a future for blackface sheep. Quite uh, happy to introduce my grandchildren to to blackface sheep. Keeping the keeping the genetics and the generation going, that'll be five or six generations you're getting down to. Uh, and, and well, yourself at Wolfords, I wish you, you every success. And, and obviously, the year on year, the Blackie sales getting better and better. And, and um, I really appreciate your time there, giving us a, a history of the the great Scottish blackface breed. And uh, hopefully, we'll um, we'll meet up there in, in at the Highland Show. And it's my turn to buy your drum, Matthew. Thank you very much, Andy. I've uh, really enjoyed it, and I've, you've stirred up some ideas that I, perhaps I should try and write down more of my memories and observations over the years. Uh, thank you. Indeed. Okay. Okay. And I hope if we, the few publications that you mentioned, I'd like to certainly like to get my hands on those. And uh, I think you mentioned earlier on that you do have some copies of the uh, of the Highland Journals for for sale as well. So uh, get in touch uh, uh, to the yeah. listener. That yeah. Yeah. Matthew, you. thank you very much for your time. That's been tremendous. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for listening to this week's Top Lines and Tales podcasts. We are once again very fortunate to be sponsored by Harbro, who of course are suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition and livestock nutritional advice. And uh, please visit their website, harbro.co.uk, for more information or find them on Facebook. And whilst on the subject of Facebook, why not look at our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find photographs and other information to back up this week and other episodes.